you know, I've had a lot of deep experiences in my life, but I can just say being around a person who's dying is one of the most beautiful things you can ever get to do. Mm. There's a great, great clarity about what's actually important in life when you're around somebody who's dying. There's no bullshit. Mm. There's no time for pretense. There's just time for caring. Welcome everybody to the podcast, Relationships. Let's talk about it. I'm Prebo Toplitsky. I'm a psychotherapist specializing in relationship issues. Everybody's got one. Partners, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, relationships. Let's talk about it. Welcome everybody to this episode, A Journey with a Dying Parent. And I have a conversation with a very dear friend of mine, Adley Gartenstein. Adley talks deeply and sincerely about his experience around his mother's death. And I'm really glad that Adley shared his story with me. My friendship with Adley began over 25 years ago when we met at Esalen Institute while we were work scholars and we formed a very deep bond since then. So let me tell you a little bit more about Adley. Adley is the former president and co-owner of Film Movement, a distributor of award-winning independent foreign films. And prior to that, he was a practicing attorney specializing in mergers and acquisitions in Manhattan, New York. And for the last 20 years, he has also been a counselor trainer, and workshop leader in the co-counseling community. He is a native of Brooklyn, New York, where he resides with his wife and daughter. And he is also the godfather of my son, Xander. So in this episode, Adley discussed how he made a conscious choice to journey closely with his mother the years leading up to her death and how he made sincere efforts to heal their past challenges so he could show up in unconditional love and acceptance. This is certainly a touching story of a son's healing process. So, welcome to our conversation. Here we go, my brother, my brother. My brother. Welcome, welcome. I'm so glad that you are here with me. Mm. Nice to be invited here with you. Yeah, except you're in New York and I'm in Nashville. (laughs) I'm excited about this conversation because when we were on the phone a few days ago and we were just talking about it, I I just felt how rich this conversation can be with your experience of caretaking your mom. What was that journey like? I mean, when I remember that you were caretaking your mother that you made a very conscious decision like this is going to be this is going to be my work this is going to be my focus how did that come up it's interesting that question and i think i think there has to be a foundation laid out if i may yes and i think important to the puzzle is knowing the early piece and i think i would start with when i was born 
I very early on assumed the caretaker role for my mother. Most of my childhood was devoted to her well-being. That became my operating principle of my life was, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about from, from birth, you know, mm. how is she, is she okay? What do I need to do to have her be okay? And that lasted for probably the first eight years of my life. And then my mother remarried. And when she remarried, I sort of freed myself a bit of that role and spent a lot of my teen and early adult years, young adult years, trying to find myself away from her and sort of almost became estranged. How were you conscious of that early on that you knew that in some way you were, you were there to keep her alive? Well, it's, it, it's, it's a profound question with a profound answer, but I actually have done some work and I, I think that it's, I think it was a decision I made in utero. I think my mother was in distress mm. and I think I sensed she was in distress and I was born six weeks early and I think that I somehow f knew that I needed to come out because she was in distress. And just be, she became my barometer. Now, I, I don't know that I want to get into too much. Mm -hmm. I feel like I want to protect her, even though she's dead. But she had a very, very rough, I, I guess I can say, you know, my mother, my mother tried to take her life when I was very little. Mm -hmm. And my reaction to that was to, was it became my survival was at stake. I need to take care of her. Because if she's gone, your survival is at stake. In that That's way. exactly right. That's exactly right. Mm. So there was a lot of like enmeshed, enmeshment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I needed her alive. Mm. I needed her happy and alive or as happy as I could be. I felt responsible for her well-being. What did you sacrifice in that, in your life of having that as your job or your goal to keep her happy and keep her alive? It's mm, a good question. I think I sacrificed a certain kind of compass for myself. You know, I think that I learned very on to place what I want secondary to what those around me want. It's been quite a big journey for me to find my own compass. Because I, my compass, I am trained to sort of respond to crisis around me, people in need around me, and harder for me to prioritize what it is I want. You're good at that because I always felt, you know, we met 25 years ago or so, and I always felt if I needed somebody, if I needed you in a crisis or just in any way that, that you would step up. You have, mm, mm. you have this calming, nurturing, rational aspect of like, hmm, we got it. We'll figure this out. Mm -hmm. We'll keep making decisions. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll say that it's, I was also someone who was poor growing up. And I think that one of the wonderful things about growing up poor and also my particular flavor of growing up poor as a caretaker is you learn how to get shit done. And I would not trade that training for anything. It also comes with a price. And now I get to sort of pay, you know, I get to sort of heal from the price that I had to pay in that role. But yes, I can, I can, I am a guy that can be relied upon and I appreciate you noticing that. And I, and I don't want to throw that away. That's a valuable skill. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I get to be generous in that way and I enjoy yeah. doing it. Yeah. No pressure on you, brother, that I know I can rely on you, but don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take care of my shit, but I, yeah. I know it's, it feels just really good to have a friend that will be there in, in that kind of light. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love you. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you've heard some of the podcasts. I must have said maybe on three or four different podcasts that my good friend Adley, what I admire so much of something that he told me was some of his challenges that he had with his relationship with his mother. And yet he chose to really be there for her when she was sick and through her death. And I asked him like, oh man, like, why, why are you giving all of yourself and, and, and all of your love after, you know, you weren't really getting from her and you had really challenges and you said, I'm paraphrasing, brother, you said something like, you know what, fuck her, man. I am not going to allow her to, to deprive me of feeling like the son that I want to be. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, mm-hmm. it's like such a profound decision, you know, in, in a conscious mm-hmm. decision of, whatever choice that you made that you wanted to experience yourself as a caring, as a loving, as an attentive uh, son. And I think that that's so profound. No, I appreciate that you saying that and remembering it. And it's true. It's one of the, it's one of the key decisions I made in my life. And I remember it. I remember thinking exactly that, that I was not going to let anyone, including my mother, deprive me of my right to be a great son. And I made that decision. I mean, just talking about the journey, I, my mother got sick probably about 10 to 15 years before she died. And that was one decision I made was I would just want it to be a great son. And it meant that I might have had feelings about how my mother was unable to provide for me in a way that I deserved to be provided. But she did the best she can. I think that was the biggest realization I had to make is my mother did the best she could under the circumstances. And I really believe that. And the job that she did fell far short of what we would want for any young human on this planet. And most parents fall short, but my mom fell short. How did, how did you embody that? Because so many people, you know, really say that there's a degree that we believe that, that our parents did the best that they could. How, how did you really embody? Because the way that you're saying that, I feel it from you that you really mm-hmm. believe and I'm, I'm imagining that was a real journey to, to embody. Mm-hmm. I want to think about that question. Getting to understand my own journey and doing my own healing. We are all such a combination of strengths and hurts and very few of those come from just our lifetimes, right? Mm-hmm. Like trauma gets passed down through generations. You know, you talk about, you know, the Holocaust, I'm a Jew. What do you think happened to the generations of people that came from descendants of the pogroms or the Holocaust? Those are traumas that get passed down. They stop getting passed down by name, but they get passed down by actions and, or, or, or omissions. Mm-hmm. My mom was a woman. She faced sexism. What is it like to have that be, you know, embodied? you know, for her to be on the target end of sexism her whole life, the target end of anti-Semitism. So I say that because those became my things to heal. And as I healed them and myself, 
or begin the journey of healing them. I'm not completely healed from most things I've experienced, but I've am on the process. As I've healed, it gives me understanding mm. and understanding of everyone, including my mother. As I understand sexism, as I understand anti-Semitism, as I understand her journey and what happened to her as a child and really understand it. Now, I would say it's hard, you know, when I think about myself as a young man, I didn't yet have enough healing of my own hurts to have enough real true understanding for someone else. As I got that, it allowed me to understand her journey without feeling the hurt of it. Hmm. So I have no doubt she did the best she could. It's both understandable and a bit absurd that we're upset at our parents. You know, like, (laughs) you know, they gave us life. You know, I would choose life. There was a point, I will say this, when my journey of healing first started, I was resentful that my mother gave birth to me. Mm. I was so hurting inside and felt she did such a negligent job. I had thought I would have chosen not to have been born. Now, once you say that, you realize how preposterous that is. Of course, I would rather have life than not to have life. Even in this time of the climate crisis, we have terrible politics that govern us. We're in the midst of a pandemic. I choose life. Like, what? how glorious to be alive. And, mm-hmm. you know, you also know my past enough to know that my emotional state was so bleak at one point. And I no longer have that bleakness on an overwhelming bleakness on a regular basis. But my mother did. That was one of her legacies. Mm. Like I, again, this is a bit of a segue, but I remember myself feeling like I had a suicidal thought. Like I was like thinking about committing suicide. And I remember thinking, God, why, why am I even having this thought? <laughs> and I remember asking my mother, you know, that's what unfolded the story. Because I said, did you? have these thoughts when I was little and she did. And then I learned about what she had done. That's part of what unfolds the story, Mm. but the darkness, you know, the darkness that who knows how many generations that's passed down. I don't, I don't don't know that it started with my mother, right? but I know it's not passing down to my daughter because I don't carry it. Right. Yeah. I want to go back to that moment if I can, because that was a very profound moment in my life. Again, the decision to sort of not be a victim to my circumstances, to actually decide that I wanted to be a great son and how powerful that felt for me and how wonderful it got to just be a great son. And it really set the ship on a particular course, right? Like I am sailing the ship towards caring for someone regardless of how she treated me, how she treats me, the thing that is my compass is I want to be a great son. It doesn't matter whether she's appreciating it or not. I get to be a great son. And something wonderful happened. She did appreciate it. She was able to take it in, but that wasn't the price I was looking for. That wasn't what I was, that wasn't the motivation. You were looking for your, for your own conviction of approval for yourself. That, that's absolutely correct. I got to look in the mirror and go, man, you are, you are a good son treating your mother with kindness, you know, with care, you're, you're honoring her. You know, I I did not want to have to carry to the grave regret for not having cared for my mom. 
But the question really is about caretaking of elders and parents. And I, I'll say that my stepfather, my well, more my mother's husband, because they married when I was 25. So I think of him as her husband, her second, her actually her third husband, who she was married to for 20 some odd years, and a wonderful man. He took care of my mother for when she was sick all through her illness. And then we thought my mom was going to die at any moment for at least a decade. And ironically, he ended up getting cancer and dying pretty quickly within 18 months. And I had made the decision. He didn't have any children of his own. He had no family that we were aware of. We were his family. And I made the decision that he deserved to be taken care of by me, that that was something I wanted to honor him with, say thank you to him by taking care of him until he passed. And he was in the hospital and I knew he wanted to die at home and I made a decision. I, but it's an interesting thing. I'd made the commitment in my mind. I am going to see this through and it's a powerful decision, mm. right? It's not like I think I want to do it. There's nothing wishy-washy about it. I'm going to take him home. I'm committed to being with him until he dies. I had no idea what I was in store for. Yeah. And in fact, I forget if it was a doctor or a nurse who tried to dissuade me from it. You know, I think, I think that she was really testing my mettle, whoever it was, was like, you know, this is a big deal. Hmm. And it just resolved my decision. And we brought him home. And, you know, I've had a lot of deep experiences in my life, but I can just say being around a person who's dying is one of the most beautiful things you can ever get to do. Mm. there's a great, great clarity about what's actually important in life when you're around somebody who's dying. There's no bullshit. Mm. There's no time for pretense. There's just time for caring. I give so much credit to people who are hospice workers or people who work Mm. around the dying. But for me, it was, I think it was in a way, it was a transition, even though I was in you know, my 50s when this happened, I would say it's in a way a transition into adulthood or into manhood, like to really play that role to be like, I'm going to make this about somebody else and care about that person. Yeah. Yeah. It, like you said, it is one of the most profound things to, to witness somebody's dying, their passing. I, when my father died, I was 28 and I didn't take care of him at home. He passed very, very quickly after uh, his cancer metastasized, but I was I was present when he died in the hospital, and it was the one of the most profound experiences of my life to have that experience to be there at that moment. Yeah, I think like that, like you said, into adulthood to me that was almost into my spiritual world. There was almost this aspect of experiencing something like that that was beyond uh, anything that I could imagine and then the connection beyond. So I think that you're absolutely right. Having, Mm. it's such a great, great honor to be present. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you got to do that, Prepo. I Mm. really am. Yeah. What was pretty amazing, man, was when, when he took his last, he took his last breath at like six in the morning, my sister and I was sleeping in his hospital bed and she woke me up. His breath was really labored and, and we just were both by his side, you know, telling him how much we loved him and tell him he could let go. And, and then he stopped breathing. And 
what I thought was for some minutes. And, and then I went and I kissed him on his lips and I actually felt like a hand in the back of my head, which wasn't his hand, but pressing up against his lips. And when I released, he's, he, what happened was he went, I love you. He took one last breath with it, oh, like after two oh, minutes of it, right? Oh, 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 wow. and, 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 and that's, that's one of the greatest moments, you know, that, oh. I, that I have in my life of that. I know people have different experiences, but it was a gift. There's some things I'd like to say that makes me, you know, I feel like I know we, we don't have unlimited time, but since we're talking about a bit about my story, I want to, there's a few more things I want to say, if that's okay. Yeah. But soon after Larry died, who was taking care of my mother, my mother was suddenly on, you know, she was needed to be taken care of. She was in a wheelchair. She again had major health issues. We decided to move her down to closer to me. So I moved her down within an hour of where I lived in between me and my brother. Again, I made the decision to really be a primary, you know, play a primary role in her care. I was her primary person taking care of her every need. I and mean, she was in an apartment and I had hired the people that were taking care of her. I would go down to see her between one and three times a week, every week. Um, and spend the day with her. And I loved, I actually loved to see her. And she would love to see me. Like I would go down there and she was in a wheelchair and she would insist whenever I came standing up out of her wheelchair to give me a hug. She waited all, mm. she just waited to have that physical contact with me. And something we would do every time I visited is we would get into her bed and take a nap together. And she just could not wait to have that physical contact. Mm. And I loved it too. It was just really relaxing for me. And was that part of your relationship at all before she got sick? Were you physically affectionate with each other like that? You know, I would say that's one of the ways that we, I don't think to that degree or that mm -hmm. regularly, but, but I always loved hugging my mother. She was mm -hmm. always a great hugger. Mm -hmm. And I think she loved physical contact. She responded to physical contact very, you know, she loved touch. Mm. So it was something, but it, I, I think that, that that napping together was very unique for us. Mm. And soon after we moved her down, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And I knew that my mom had about 18 months to live. And she lived about maybe it was two years, I think she ended up living. But it, again, it was just an incredible, incredible time for me to get to be close with her. But I think there's a particular story. Like I knew that I wanted to be close to her. And at one point I said to her, I said, Ma, I want to be with you when you die. And she looked me in the eyes in a way I've never seen her look anyone in the eyes. And she really searched for my sincerity in the statement like to really take it in. Like I think there was somewhere where I tell she has always felt alone. But when I made that statement, she searched my every fiber to see if I was telling the truth. And I could tell she took it in and she said, okay, I would like that. Mm. And this was about maybe eight months before she died. I said, we had that conversation. And 
you know, the, you know, at some point we had the hospice workers coming in and I would always ask the hospice workers and the nurse, how long do you think? And because I wanted to know, and they would always say, it's not close, you know, could be weeks to months. And just before she died, I had a workshop to go to and I, the hospice worker was there that morning and said that she was still weeks away, at least weeks away from dying. And I had this workshop to go to. So I said to her, I'm going to this workshop. And I remember looking at her and saying, wait for me. I will be back. Wait for me. I want to be here with you. There was no indication that that weekend she was going to die, but I, she could die at any moment. I mean, the hospice workers are just making a guess. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like weeks away. But I had a sense and I said, wait for me. And she said, okay. And I left on that Friday and I was supposed to come home on Sunday. And I went Friday and I just could not bring myself to stay until Sunday. I just, I was too feeling too much about her. And I left the workshop on Saturday and I came back. And one of the things that it was getting harder to get her out of bed to go to the bathroom, she needed to be carried. And she refused a hospital bed and a hospital bed would have made it easier in her room because you, instead of lifting her out of the bed, you could raise the bed. But when I came home on that Saturday, she agreed to have the hospital bed. Her, she said her hesitation with getting the hospital bed was that she was worried that I couldn't nap with her. I couldn't mm. cuddle with her. Oh, wow. Mm. And I said, Ma, get the hospital bed. And if, you, if I can't cuddle with you, I promise to get rid of it. And they brought in the hospital bed and we used it that night. I put a bed right next to it and I slept next to her. But she was right. I could not cuddle with her. So the next morning I kept my word and I had them come and get rid of the hospital bed and put her back wow. in the bed wow. where she was. And the hospice workers were there. And, and I said, how long do you think? And I said, mm, not for a while, you know, days to weeks. And they put her in the bed and the hospice workers left. I said goodbye to the hospice worker. She said days to weeks. <laughs> and I got into the bed with my mother where I promised I would be picked up my phone to respond to a text of her sister who wanted to know how she was. In the middle of texting, I said, you know what? I don't want to text. I just want to be with my mother. And then I looked at her. I turned to her and she was dead. That was it. She was just waiting for me to get in the bed with her. Mm. And she passed, you know, and we kept, you know, I kept my word. I was with her when she passed and she kept her word and waited for me to get in bed with her. And, you know, it's just so interesting. Yeah. So anyway, it was a really strong moment. And I always think it's very funny that the hospice worker, you know, literally she died, she died five minutes after the hospice worker said she's not close, you know. <laughs> That's so beautiful though. That, that, yeah. That you had that experience together. And, and uh, in that moment, you know, we talked about that too the other day on the phone of that moment of, you know, you looking at the text and in some way she giving herself permission to, to go at that moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah whatever yeah. that means. But mm, 
Yeah. That's a beautiful story. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm just, I'm pausing <laughs> thinking about how profound also, even the period after that, just getting to be around her body, you know, was also really healing for me to like, just get to be with her. It was interesting that the first thing I noticed, I knew she was dead because her face looked uh, more relaxed than I had seen it in, in 20 years. You know, it was interesting that whatever stress she was carrying or pain she was carrying, she was free of, you know, her face looked really relaxed. And what about you? You know, the mixed feelings that loved ones have, especially kids that are caretaking of the, of the loss, but also a sense of relief, the relief for the person that's no longer in pain, the relief perhaps of also all of the, the obligation and responsibility. What, what emotions were, were you experiencing? You know, in the, not in, that, in those moments, but just in reflection of, uh, mm. you know, that, that I think people have their different experiences, but a lot of adult uh, children caretaking their parents, there's a lot of mixed emotions around losing a parent. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, certainly my life, that was my primary job for that period of time. So in some ways, a chapter had ended. But it was also great freedom because, you know, as I mentioned, I had taken on that role at a very young age. So I was liberated from any, any part of that position, which was based in, you know, early trauma or my early life. I was liberated from that. I never was going to have to do that again with her. And then there was the part that, you know, to the extent that I had taken on just a job, that job was done well. It was done. I feel very proud and very fortunate to have gotten to do that. So I felt, I felt like I had done a job well done. Oh, there was a text that I had gotten from the hospice worker who told me that she had never seen a relationship between a son and a mother like that. And just mm-hmm. what a wonderful son I was. And I had had this great sense of pride inside that, you know, that like she told me she used to come in when I was, she would sometimes come in and find me and my mom sleeping and she would cry, you know, mm. just seeing the two of us together and, uh, and just what a great son I was that she felt really moved by it. And I felt like I got to have that feeling. I had, was lucky, you know, some people, their moms, you know, I have a friend, his mom just died. He got a phone call that his mom had passed and there was, there was, you know, she had had a heart attack. There was nothing wrong with her. And I felt, wow, I felt so sad for him that he didn't have the months and months and months and months that I had had to get to say goodbye to her and to really come to terms with, I don't feel unresolved. I feel very resolved with my mother. Wasn't it more internally than on your own? Because what I recall, you said, you know, she was on a lot of medication, doped up. And it's not like you were able to have this lucid process of processing your, your enmeshed relationship with her and you feel, you know, complete, right? That, that didn't take place. It was more internally for you, wasn't that right? I would say it's part internally, but I actually got to have great conversations with her. Hmm. There were things that I knew that she had experienced that I wanted the details of and have better understanding of and got to talk to her about it. And I got to record some of those conversations. And my mom was, inc- 
incredible, she had an incredible mind. Even though she was under a lot of drugs, you know, even ramping up at the end, it's amazing how sharp her mind was. And I feel very lucky that even until the very end, except for the last, I don't know how many hours, 12 hours where she was becoming incoherent, she was mostly present and sharp and aware, you know, up until the very end. So yes, internal, but I got to say whatever I needed to say to her, Hmm. you know, I, I really did. And, you know, she gave me a gift, you know, she did give me a gift. You know, there was one moment that I even hesitate to say it because it's so precious. But when I left to go to that workshop on that Friday, my mom was sleeping and I got into the bed with her and I was just kissing her and crying, saying goodbye to her. Because you never know when someone's in that condition, even though they're saying a few weeks, you have to know that it could be at any moment. You know, it's hard to live your life being that it's any moment, but they're making hospice workers who are amazing are making their best guesses, but also saying it could be any moment, but I think it's weeks or months away, but you can't live a life as if every moment is the moment, you know, that can go on for a year. You know, we, my mother, they've been telling me my mother's going to die really for a decade, but I was kissing her goodbye and she put her arm around me and you know, it's funny that the story that you tell about your dad pushing his face, you know, your head towards his face and saying, I love you. My mom pulled me in as I was crying and she just said, oh, Ed, like caretaking me. And I feel like, wow, we have come full circle. Like my mom, before she died on her deathbed, got to caretake me. Mm. And I got to take it in and I got to cry and I really took it in. I was like, you go, ma, <laughs> you get to caretake me. Mm. And I felt like it was such a blessing. Like I got to receive this gift from her. It took her, she, and good on her. Yeah. Uh, in her lifetime, she got to give this to me. And I, and how lucky am I? I got to have this thing that I, thought I would never get, have had given up on ever getting from her, you know, gave me this gift of caretaking me. Again, I was looking for it and she gave it to me. So I would say that it's not just internal. There were these, the external pieces as well. Hmm. And, and just her loving of me. I mean, she loved me and she really valued my role. I mean, it's, it's so, I mean, we all, live to be significant in our lives. And it was, you know, just to know to come in and see how she would light up when I came in, that my presence made such a difference for her. That's, that's great. I like that. I like that. That was meaningful for me. I really love how you, you know, shared all this and the, and the emotion and the, and the vulnerability in our conversations. And, you know, we have these conversations between you and I, but I really appreciate that. you that you're willing to put it out mm-hmm. on the podcast and not just talk about some of the logistics that people have to go through, the legalities, some of the the family strife, or, you know, one uh, sibling is taking care of, the other one's not, and some of the fights that go on. I'm sure that happens, and I'm sure that you had some of the challenge to navigate this, but your, your memories and the expression of the caretaking um, you just shared about just your relationship with your mother in this and the relationship mm-hmm. of, of this connection of her passing. So 
Mm. Beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's good to tell you. Mm. Yeah. I do feel vulnerable thinking about it going out across the world. So I hope it's heard with respect and appreciation or, or mm. tenderness is what I would ask for. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think people are going to feel that and they're going to feel the tenderness around it, you know, for, for your experience and, and your story, but also it's going to hopefully touch their own tenderness of mm-hmm. their experience mm-hmm. or their anticipatory experience. Mm-hmm. And, and your story hopefully can give somebody an awareness and aha of the possibility of what they mm-hmm. might be able to touch mm-hmm. upon if they show up the way that they may want to. Mm-hmm. I hope so. And the only thing I would say is, is that I, I really have great compassion for wherever people are at. Like some people may just not be ready to play this role. You know, I would, I would encourage you to sort of head a little bit more into what may be uncomfortable for you, mm. but some people just may not, you know, yeah. some people just are not in a position, you know, the hurts are too strong and too raw to head in that direction and I don't consider myself better or worse for having played it. It's just the, where my journey led me and I, and people have different journeys. Just like you said in the beginning, you know, she did the best that, that she could and to put it out to everybody that we're doing the best that mm-hmm. we can and for us to That's feel right. that, to have that compassion for ourselves. And if there are, holdings and and challenges that that we have to get past opening up our heart that's just where we're at in our process Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think that that's right Mm. well said yeah well thank you brother Mm. i really appreciate you you putting your experience and your story out and uh it was uh a nice journey to be on with you about that experience. even though i've heard it in segments with you it's it's Mm -hmm. really nice to to hear it again and and uh to feel so much love and and my own respect for you and that i'm so appreciative that that you're my dear friend and that Mm. uh, you're walking in this world Mm -hmm. well thank you and i i want to i appreciate you wanting to know and having the space to ask and listen and I will also say it's nice to hear, like to have your story with your dad, which I've also heard so close to the story with, with my mom. It's nice to feel connected with you in that vulnerable way around those stories. And I like having that be part of my story now too. So mm. thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, brother. I know that, uh, that our time is about up. But I uh, yeah. would love to journey and do this again with you. We'll figure out yeah. something, another journey of uh, good relationship focus that you do so well. And in our friendship, I think we do very well in seeing each other, acknowledging each other. And 26 years now, right? Going on. Oh, going man. On. Yeah. That's it, baby. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love you, Prepo. I love you, brother. Thank you, Adley. All right. Okay. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. Before we go, I just want to let you know that my new website, prepo.com, is up and running. And my recorded guided meditations will start to be available beginning in the month of October on my website, prepo.com. If you would like to inquire about my counseling and consulting services, you can contact me 
on my website, prepo.com. If you also have a relationship question that you would like answered on a future podcast, shoot me an email on my website. Please follow me on Instagram at Prepo Teplitsky. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Thanks, everybody, and make yourselves a beautiful day. Relationships, Let's Talk About It is a production of HeartShare Counseling and Consulting PC of Asheville, North Carolina. For more on licensed counselor Prepo Teplitsky, visit heartsharecounseling.com. Theme music by Adi the Monk. This content is intended for informational purposes only, is not a substitute for professional counseling and psychotherapy, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, and does not constitute medical or other professional advice.